let me begin by thanking you for the privilege of inviting me to give Michael McLennan's talk on preaching Adam. Not quite sure what I'm going to say. Actually, um, just a, a slight tweak. It's um, my uh, uh, contribution to this conference is going to be on the subject of uh, original sin, uh, and Michael is going to be talking about preaching. I'm not sure whether that's what David had in mind, but I remember very well when. Uh, Gary called me up to say, would I be willing to preach on the subject of, uh, talk on the subject of original sin at the conference here? And I was delighted to accept the invitation. I then realised, however, that I was faced with something of a challenge because I saw the timetable. And the first session in the afternoon of the second day, after we'd spent the morning having our brains gently fried by Gary, and now we're all leaning back in our seats, having feasted on one of Giovanni's sumptuous lunches, and we all enjoyed one of those puddings, or two. And um, some eyes are starting to close. So I, I have today for you the perfect antidote in the shape of America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who is the theological equivalent of three uh, triple espressos. He's the six-pack of Red Bull to a weary soul. And when we get him on this doctrine of original sin we find him at his most eye-popping. I've not read um, everything of Edwards' by any means. I don't think many people have. Um, But if you've read some of him, I'm sure that many of us have read a good deal of his work. Occasionally he comes up with things you think, nobody else has said that. Let me tell you, nobody else has said this. The sorts of things that Edwards contributes to the debate on original sin, I find particularly insightful, and so it's a privilege to be able to bring them to you. It's a bit of a roller coaster, um, uh, but it means that if we hang on and keep our seatbelts fastened, I don't think we're going to fall asleep. I think we should just about make it to the end. In the uh, seats, you should have been given uh, a couple of these handouts. One of them is in landscape form, just single-sided. I'll come to that uh, later on. And the other is uh, double-sided, headed original sin. Unbiblical, unjust, and unreasonable. In the middle of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards was confronted by numerous vigorous challenges to historic Reformed doctrines, from theological contemporaries influenced by a range of different things, including uh, Enlightenment, rationalism, and one of his greatest adversaries was John Taylor. John Taylor was born in Scotland, about which I'll say nothing, in 1694, He was a gifted scholar and he challenged the traditional reformed doctrine of original sin. Now, typically of Edwards, Taylor wasn't the only guy who went around doing this, but typically for Edwards, he went after the best exponent of the view that challenged his own. If you're Jonathan Edwards and you want to get into a fight, you pick a heavyweight. And in in, uh, John Taylor, he did pick a heavyweight indeed. And Jonathan Edwards describes... In his book, Original Sin, which is the third volume of his works, I've got it here, um, he describes a number of challenges from Taylor and other people uh, to his own view, uh, the Reformed Doctrine of Original Sin. Then he gets to what he thinks of as the greatest challenge of all. He calls it the Grand Objection. And I've quoted uh, Edward's summary of Taylor's objection. It goes like this, at the top of the page, under the heading Introduction. That grand objection against the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity, that is his offspring, that such imputation is unjust and unreasonable inasmuch as Adam and his posterity are not 
one and the same. That's Edwards' summary of the objection which he tackles. And that's going to be the objection which we tackle in the next few minutes or so. Let me just highlight for a a few points that um, Taylor is making. First, he's saying that original sin is unjust. It's not fair. It's morally wrong for God to count the sin of one man to another. Especially since God goes to quite great lengths in the scriptures to tell us that we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't acquit the guilty and justify the innocent. And therefore, we might reasonably assume that neither will he. Secondly, it's unreasonable. That is to say, it's out of accord with the nature of things. Notice what Taylor says. Adam and his posterity are not one and the same. The nature of things is that we are not Adam and Adam is not us. And therefore, it just doesn't fit with the way things are. And it therefore follows that the Bible can't be held to teach such nonsense. The doctrine of original sin is unbiblical. And I want to just highlight one thing at this stage, which is that the theological claim, the denial of the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity, is rest, rests here for, for Taylor on an ontological foundation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Ontology is the study of things, stuff. It's a branch of metaphysics. It's to do with uh, what it means for something to exist and to stay the same through time or to change. And the theological claim, you can't impute one man's sin to another, rests on a foundation which is to do with metaphysics, ontology, how things are. And Edwards therefore realises that he's got to come back with a metaphysical response. He has to find some way of describing the created world that makes sense of the rightness and propriety of the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. Now, before we go any further, let's just recognise this objection is still alive today. It might not be articulated with the precision that we find in Taylor, but I came across it just a few weeks ago. At Emmanuel, where I minister, we have services in the morning, then we break for coffee, because that's in the Westminster Confession, isn't it? And... um, uh, then we have donuts, which should be in the Westminster Confession. And then we have a thing called Forum, which is a kind of interactive Q&A time. Sometimes I'll do another talk or we'll have a Bible study or pray or learn to sing something. But on this occasion, we just had a question and answer. And I must have said something about original sin because the subject came up, as it does at super-reformed churches like ours. We just the sort of thing we talk about over lunch. And one lady said, I mean, what is original sin? I mean, we're not guilty for Adam's sin, are we? So what's it all about? Can you see the assumption? It's just, it seems to her like a nonsense to think that God holds us guilty for the sin of Adam. And I think that assumption is alive and well, not just in that lady, who's a mature Christian, but uh, in a lot of different places in the church. And today I want to see uh, how Edwards deals with it. The plan is outlined on your sheets. There's three stages to it. First, we'll outline the historic taxonomy, really, a uh, a set of historic views on original sin. Because I'm aware that, um, uh, especially it's lunchtime, you just had lunch and we need to catch up with, especially John Murray's superb book, The Imputation of Adam's Sin, which will be a kind of guide through those issues. Secondly, we'll outline how Jonathan Edwards responds to Taylor's objection. That's, if you like, the heart of where we're going today. And then thirdly, I want to propose an alternative because I think that Edwards' foundation, the ontological basis that he proposes, doesn't work. And that leaves us with a problem, or leaves me with a problem, if you agree with me, it leaves us with a problem. And I want to suggest that we can rescue what's good about Edward's theology, and there's a great deal that's good about his theology, by tweaking the metaphysics slightly. 
finally, just by way of introduction, um, somebody uh, picked up on what Phil was saying um, during the Q&A after Gary's talk about is there a, there's a danger, isn't there, that we get wrapped up in abstruse and obscure language and concepts which seem quite a long way from the Bible. Um, and in this session, and as I've been preparing this, I've been fairly conscious of the danger of that. And I don't really want to claim that the level of detail that we're going to be going into today is going to be the sort of thing that you say to the person in your congregation who says, oh, Adam's sin isn't counted to us, is it? Um, you're not going to reproduce this, I don't think. But I hope that this will give you the foundations so that you're able to say something which is meaningful to somebody who is just a conscientious Christian and wants to try and understand the Bible better. It's, they're like the foundations of a house. You don't live in the basement, I hope. But, the, but they need to be there. Uh, we don't have to go down every day to inspect them, but just occasionally it will be wise to work out whether they're still uh, holding together. So with that caveat, let's kick off with some uh, four views, really. Somebody should make that into a book title. Four views on original sin. This, as I mentioned, is indebted to John Murray's superb book, The Imputation of Adam's Sin. And really, his analysis focuses around, well, several questions. I want to focus on two of the questions that he asks. The first question is, what is the meaning of all sinned, quote, in Romans 5.12? Let me remind you of the text. Romans 5.12 reads as follows. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Death spread to all men, because all sinned. The question is simple. What is that sin that all did? When Paul says all sinned, what was it? Uh, just briefly, uh, John Murray comments that the, the phrase F-ho, in F-ho pantes hematon, in, in whom all sinned, is causal. It means in that, or by the fact that, or because. So, we might gloss it like this. Death spread to all men because all sinned, just as the ESV has it. Four views then. First, the Pelagian view. The key word here is imitation. All sinned refers simply and only to the actual sins of individual people. Adam's sin is original in the sense that it was the first, but in no other sense than that. In fact, Pelagius doesn't really have a doctrine of imputed sin at all. Death comes to all men because all men sin as individual men. We don't need to linger long here. This is clearly unbiblical. It's directly contradicted, I quite like this, by verse 14, which said that death reigned from Adam to Moses even those, over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. You can't get much clearer than that, can you? Pelagius wants to say that death reigns because all sin, in fact, in their own bodies, in their own persons, and Paul says death reigned even over those who don't sin. If Paul wanted to rule out Pelagianism, he couldn't have done a better job two sentences later. It ignores the repeated phrase, more, uh, one sin, one man, which occurs five times in the next few verses. It doesn't say many sins of many men. It says one sin of one man. Moreover, and this is reflecting on um, where we might end up a bit later on, it does violence to the parallel between Adam and Christ. Again and again we've returned to this, haven't we? How Adam is important because Christ is important. Whatever we say about condemnation and death in Adam, we're committed to some analogous doctrine of justification and life in Christ. So if condemnation and death are 
experienced solely because we imitate Adam, then we might reason, and Pelagius did reason, that justification and life are found solely by imitating Christ. And that's indeed Pelagian doctrine, but it's not the Bible's teaching. Pelagius' teaching on original sin carries a cost that's too high to pay. That's Pelagius' view. The Roman Catholic view, second. Among Roman Catholics, there's a variety of views, and I confess, maybe people who've read Murray can help me with this, that I found it hard to distinguish between them, maybe because there are distinctions without difference. But there is a distinction in, I guess, what you'd call classic Roman Catholic teaching between Adam's sinful personal state and his sinful personal act. And Roman Catholics say that the sinful state is imputed, but the act is not. Now that's important because, they say, the sinful state is only sinful in conjunction with the sinful act. For the sinful state to be sinful, it must come packaged with the sinful act, the sinful deed, but only the sinful state is imputed to Adam's posterity. That's Roman Catholic teaching. And again, I don't think that um, fits with the biblical data. It strains the meaning of all sinned. That seems to talk about an action, or sinned. Like the Pelagian view, it overlooks the significance of the repeated phrase, one sin, in Romans 5, because it implies that what's actually necessary to render us condemnation is a kind of sinful state plus many sins of many men. And then finally, like the Pelagian view, it strains the Adam-Christ parallel to breaking point. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Pelagian doctrine of original sin fits with the Pelagian doctrine of justification, so also with the Roman Catholic doctrine of original sin and the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification. Roman Catholics don't believe that Christ's one act of righteousness renders us righteous in him. But rather and this is a caricature, but it's a helpful illustration, I think, it's the, it wins for us the Popeye spinach of the Holy Spirit by which we're enabled to do good deeds in ourselves that render us righteous in God's sight. It's the helping hand up, just as in Adam's case, it's the helping hand down. So the Roman Catholic view should be rejected for those reasons. Now we could come thirdly to Calvin's view, and here's where it gets intriguing, because Calvin's view exegetically is very similar to the Roman Catholic position. If you read what Calvin actually thinks that all sinned means, he thinks it refers to a sinful state. He doesn't think it refers to a sinful act. And so if we were being careless and imprecise, as Gary warned us not to earlier, we might foolishly think that Calvin is siding with Rome on original sin, which would be a pretty careless and actually, given that you're going to meet him one day, quite a bold thing to do. Um, in fact, the difference is quite important because Calvin thinks the sinful state is itself morally culpable. So the imputation of Adam's sinful state to his posterity renders us blameworthy and guilty and condemned in God's sight. So it doesn't face the same theological problems as the Roman Catholic view, at least not in quite the same ways, Myself, I'm not persuaded that it's what the Bible teaches, though, simply because it strains the meaning of Paul's phrase, all sinned. Just look again at the, the text on the handout. Death spread to all men because all sinned. It just seems hard to read that as anything other than just a sinful deed. And that's what the fourth view, which Murray calls the traditional Protestant view, gets at. The traditional Protestant view is an attempt to take account of all the objections to the previous views and to do justice to Romans 5. 
The phrase all sinned refers to Adam's one sin, which is counted as being committed by his posterity. We are counted as having done the same thing. It includes his sinful state, but it's not restricted to that. The traditional Protestant view, as Murray calls it, goes beyond Calvin's view and includes in the thing that's imputed the sinful action, the sinful deed. So, Murray, just to quote him, when Paul says all sinned in verse 12, and when he speaks of the one trespass of the one man in verses 15 to 19, he must be referring to the same fact or event. He gives uh, some reasons for this. In verse 12, death arose because all sinned. In verses 15 to 19, death arose because of one sin. So why does death happen? Because all sinned and because of one sin. And so we feel forced to this conclusion that the one sin must be the all sinned. And death reigned even over those who didn't sin, like Adam. If there was somebody who, between Adam and Moses, didn't sin in the likeness of Adam in their own persons, nonetheless death reigned over them because Adam's one sin is counted theirs. So with good reason, this is the most widely accepted view among reformed thinkers. Adam's one sin is our sin. And that just raises the question, doesn't it, that, that Edwards must answer when we give him a moment to speak. How is this possible? How can Adam's sin be your sin and mine? And Murray's answer is a helpful introduction to the next part of our outline of these historical views. He says, there must be some kind of solidarity or union or oneness or relationship. There must be some kind of solidarity existing between the one and the all such that the sin of the one can justly be counted as the sin of all. And so that raises the question uh, on the next heading. What is the nature of the union between Adam and his posterity? What kind of relationship or solidarity is there which would make sense of counting this one man's sin as mine and yours? There are two options broadly within the Reformed community, which is now where we're focusing. Having got to the point of saying we we want to be traditional Protestants, let's focus on the answers that the Reformed give to this question. First, realism. A minority view among the Reformed, this was held by William Shedd, by Strong, and it goes like this. The union between Adam and his offspring rests upon an ontological connection between them. There's something within the created world that joins us to Adam. And here's the important point. That thing is the basis of the union between us and that thing, therefore, is the basis of Adam's sin being counted as ours. That's the important point is the thing is within the world. Realists, of course, note the well-known text in Hebrews 7, verses 9 and 10, which recalls Genesis 15. You remember what happened. Uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek at the conclusion of a series of battles, but uh, Hebrews tells us that Abraham wasn't the only one who paid the tithes. Levi was still in in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, Levi also paid tithes to Melchizedek. And the phrase in the loins of his ancestor is thought by realists to indicate that there was this ontological connection. Even though Levi wasn't, so to speak, individuated and realised as a, as a conscious, voluntary agent, nonetheless, he's involved. 
because he's physically there. It seems to relieve the difficulty, doesn't it? Because suppose you ask the question, and this is the question that um, this is the question that your friends at church will ask, congregation members, Lady at Emmanuel asked. How can we be responsible for committing a sin when we weren't even there? A.H. Strong will say it's very simple. We were. The whole race at the time of Adam existed, not individually, but seminally, in him. Shed comments. We all existed in Adam, in our elementary individual substance. So Shedd thinks he has got around this problem. He's avoided making imputation, what he calls an arbitrary act of sovereignty. It removes the great difficulties, he said, connected with the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity that arise from the injustice of punishing a man for a sin in which he had no kind of participation. Quite simply, because we did have a kind of participation. The difficulty is completely dissolved because we were there. See, this is the great strength of realism. If realism were true, it would make complete sense, wouldn't it? Because you could no longer say that you didn't have a part. You could no longer say that you weren't present. You could no longer say that it's nothing to do with you because you were there, you were present, it has everything to do with you. We and Adam are one and the same. It seems to address Taylor's objection. So Taylor says, Adam and his posterity are not one and the same. And Shedd says, yes, you jolly well were. Yes, you are. There's something within the world that grounds that connectedness. However, if we look a little bit deeper, we start to see problems emerging. For example, just remember that quote from Shedd. We all existed in Adam in our elementary individual substance. Well, just hold on a second, Bill. What elementary what individual substance? Let me read. Just show me that in the Bible. Or put more formally. Is this not in danger of reifying something which, in fact, is uh, an abstract notion, human nature, turning an abstract notion into something concrete, as if human nature is a thing, a sort of stuff, an invisible material from which we're made, kind of like proto-human plasticine that's passed down. Where in the Bible do you find such a notion? Second, even if we grant that it exists, I'm not sure that it does the job that the realists think it does. Because even the realists would admit that individual people didn't exist in Adam. And if you're not an individuated person, then you can't consent. Because consent presupposes the action of an individuated, morally responsible, voluntary human will. So if we didn't participate as voluntary moral agents, how did we? Thirdly, Realism simultaneously explains too little and too much. Too much, if it's true, then all of Adam's sins should be imputed to all his posterity, not just the first, and in fact all of Eve's sins, and all of Cain and Abel's sins, and all of their... All of, there should be this big piling up of sins down the ages. It explains too much. Whereas scripture identifies only Adam's first sin as significant. Isn't that intriguing? At the same time, it explains too little. This is where the, the wheels really come off. When we, you consider the Adam-Christ parallel, there is no realist connection between Christ and me. And so if realism is the answer to Adam and us, we still need something else to explain our relationship with Christ. And given the parallel between Adam and Christ... One starts to ask questions about really whether realism 
can be a significant part of the answer at all. It might be that there is a kind of physical connection. Some of the atoms in you might have been atoms in Adam. But that can hardly be the basis upon which we say Adam's sin was imputed. So, we turn to the more widespread uh, reformed view, federalism. Federalism doesn't deny the ontological connectedness between Adam and his offspring. Uh, it, one of the interesting things about federalism is you can cheerfully affirm everything that realists say except its sufficiency. Realists claim that the physical connection is enough. Federalists say that it's not sufficient to account for the union which is the basis of the imputation of sin. Something else is required. And that something else is what we might call the divine constitution, the divine decree. God just decides. God appointed Adam to stand in a particular relationship to all humanity. Uh, history has called that relationship a federal head or a representative head. God counts him as acting on behalf of all those who, by that constitution, are in him, related to him, under him. The background is the recognition that, according to the Bible, there are lots of these relationships. Kings act on behalf of subjects, for example, priests on behalf of people. Uh, the sins of fathers, just occasionally accounted by God, not by people, by God, to their sons. Think of um, Saul and his seven sons and the, the Gibeonite massacre. Now, Adam is one particular example of this. He was appointed to stand as a representative and head of all humanity in this particular task, the probationary task in the garden, and in that task he failed, and that failure is counted as our failure. Because God decided, when he made Adam, to make him in that relationship to us all. See, the strength is, it now makes sense of the Adam-Christ parallel, doesn't it? If we don't find a realist connection between us and Christ, that's not the end of the world. It explains why only Adam's first sin is imputed, because once he'd sinned, he'd lost that privileged status as the federal head. And it doesn't rely on this questionable notion of an invisible substance supposedly passed down. So, with good reason, federalism is the majority reformed view of the union between Adam and his offspring. Make sense so far? Great, got some nods. So the traditional Protestant view, just to summarise, makes sense of the one sin. Some version of federalism is clearly required, and so far we're all in the clear. But, here's a thought. Remember something else that Shedd said. Shedd is the sort of guy, he's got the sort of name which, it just lends itself to... Um, puns. Like Oliver Crisp read a paper with Shed in the title and it was something about keeping Edwards out of the Shed or something. I can't remember quite how it worked anyway. But just think of his, his um, objection and the thing he's trying to deal with. He doesn't want the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity to be, quote, an arbitrary act of sovereignty. Arbitrary, that is, with respect to the way things are. Wouldn't it be better if we had a view of the world which went alongside federalism, but where in the world there is a kind of connectedness which undercuts the objection. It allows us to say that in some sense we are one and the same with Adam. Not just because God says so, although that will be enough, that will be enough, but in the world that we see, so that God's decree somehow corresponds with God's creation. That would be nice, wouldn't it? So we return to the objection that John Taylor wrote 
that the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity is unjust and unreasonable. We've got a metaphysical problem. We've got a problem. We, we, we feel the force of Shed saying it's arbitrary. And Edwards seeks to provide an explanation of the way things are that shows us that it's not arbitrary after all. Let me move on to that, the second major section of what we're looking at. We've got these historic views and what we're looking for is now somebody to tell us about the world. What's the world like that makes sense of uh, the invitation of Adam's sin to his posterity? Suppose we go right back to basics. What is the world anyway? Edwards holds a view known as occasionalism. Edwards says that everything that we see around us, the whole world, is created ex nihilo at every instant for which it exists. Having been created, nothing at all exists for more than a moment of time. It immediately vanishes out of existence, only to be created again the very next instant. As soon as it's created, it disappears, and then it's replaced again, and then that disappears, and then it's replaced again by the next universe, created out of nothing. And that the whole of human history is a succession of one universe after the other. This doctrine is known as occasionalism. Formally, what it does is to obliterate the distinction between creation and providence. So Edward says, for example, God's preserving created things in being is perfectly equivalent to a continued creation or to his creating those things out of nothing at each moment of their existence. Perfectly equivalent. God's upholding created substance or causing its existence in each successive moment, he says, is altogether equivalent to an immediate production out of nothing at each moment. Notice those phrases? It's perfectly equivalent. There's no distinction in Edwards' mind between creation and providence. Everything you see around you has been immediately created out of nothing at that instant, and what you see now is a different universe. Look at the guy next to you. And now look again. Different man. Serious. It's weird, isn't it? Um, this occasionalism is pretty rare among philosophers and theologians some Muslims believe it which is hardly very helpful um, Malbranche believed it um, there are a few others um, think of the history of the universe like a series of freeze frames on one of those old fashioned movie reels separate pictures they appear to be one because they're sped up fast and they whiz past us so fast that it, it ought to look jerky, but our eyes aren't fast enough to catch the thing. In fact, you're living in a different universe now from where you were just half a second ago. Now, if you're living in a different universe from where you were half a second ago, what is the basis for any oneness at all between any created things? There's nothing that conceivably could exist in the universe now to ground the relationship between this universe and the next universe because that universe is going to be obliterated and fall out of existence before the next one comes into place. The only possible basis for any oneness in created things, says Edwards, is divine decree, the divine constitution. All oneness, all union, all relationship between things through time, this Bible now and now, is only the same Bible because God says so. God has made, made the Bible twice. 
many, many more times than twice, but at least twice in two different universities, and he says it's the same, therefore it's the same. Thus it appears, said Edwards, if we consider matters strictly, that there's no such thing as any identity or oneness in created objects existing at different times, but what depends on God's sovereign constitution. Now work that through into your doctrine of the imputation of sin. Why am I guilty for a sin I committed yesterday? I'm not inherently one with myself, but because God says so, I am. Personal identity, says Edwards, and so the derivation of the pollution and guilt of past sins in the same person depends on an arbitrary divine constitution. And if God can decree a oneness between me and myself yesterday and today, he can just as easily do the same with me and Adam. And that's what God, in fact, has done. So the bottom line response to Taylor, it's magnificent, Edwards, um, typically bullish, 28-point Calvinist. Um, the objection, quote, is built upon a false hypothesis, for it appears that a divine constitution is the thing which makes truth in affairs of this nature. A divine constitution is the thing which makes truth in affairs of this nature. Now then, suppose that we grant that for a moment. Could God constitute a oneness, relationship, identity, solidarity between, let's say, a chair and a cricket ball and a plate of chicken vindaloo? Is that what this view takes us towards? This is the objection that comes back from people like Robert Chisholm and others, he's a modern philosopher really, and others since him, where he says, Edward's position makes the divine constitution of things arbitrary in the sense that there's nothing to prevent God from constituting a unity between any group of temporarily scattered individuals, regardless of whether they have any properties in common. Can you see the problem? Uh, Edward's view seems to suggest that God could be whimsical and make... Uh, you one with a bacon rasher and a tree in the Amazon rainforest and just, you just toss and turn and chop and change with no connection to the way things seem, to the properties of things. Now, Edwards has an answer to that. He says, no, 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 no. Um, in fact, whenever God constitutes a relationship between things through time, union through time, relatedness through time, he also confers on those things common properties. And those common properties make sense of the union. They're not the basis of the union, but they go alongside it. They accompany the solidarity through time. So, for example, look at me. I'm six foot something now, and I'm six foot something now. If I'd just gone and changed from a, being a bloke to a girl and my shirt changed colour, you might think, that's not the same guy. Because the properties... Obviously, if I turned into a... Yeah. But you, you take the point. If, if, if you look at a book and then you look away, then you look at a book and it's a different colour, you think, oh, it's a different book. But God doesn't do that. God isn't whimsical or arbitrary in that sense. He so holds things together that when he confers identity through time, he also confers properties on those things which make sense of the identity. And moreover, there are different kinds of common properties, different kinds of identity. So, for example, all plates of chicken vindaloo are the same in one respect. All chicken dishes generally are the same in another respect. You see, they have different sets of properties in common. Lamb curry, on the other hand, 
is similar because it has some of the same spices, but it has other properties which differ. And so there are a myriad range of different divinely constituted identities which exist across creation and in space and through time in conformity with properties of those things that God also confers divinely, sovereignly. Now, let's work through the implications for the imputation of Adam's sin. Our oneness with Adam, he would say, is divinely decreed because there's no other conceivable way in which anything can be one with anything. That's almost Edwards' refusal to answer the question in the terms in which Taylor asks it is precisely the strength of his position. But we do in fact share common properties with Adam. According to Edwards, we consent to Adam's sin. God, in constituting a oneness between us and Adam, has also conferred on us that property of consent of the will to the sort of thing that Adam did, or the particular thing that he did. So, not only are there, is there a divine constitution which says, yes, you're as one with Adam in his sin as anything is one with anything else, but moreover, you do in fact want to do the thing that he did you share with him that critical property of consent to the evil, which if you know reformed ethics, consent is precisely one of the criteria for moral responsibility. So there's no legal fiction involved here. This is, again, majestic Edwards, really. He says, the sin of the apostasy is not ours merely because God imputes it to us. No, it's truly and properly ours. And on that ground, God imputes it to us. Can you see what he's saying? So there are some quotations there to summarise Edwards' position. Um, he likes the illustration of a tree. Adam's posterity are united to him. Something as the branches of a tree are united to the root, or the members of the body to the head, just to pick two random biblical illustrations. Um, so as to constitute, as it were, one complex person, or one moral whole. So what happens to the root of a tree eventually corrupts the branches. There exists a communion and coexistence in all acts and affections. Affections in um, uh, Edwards' thinking means acts of the will. He thinks the will and the affections are the same thing. If you've read the religious affections, you know that. Um, all jointly participating and all concurring in, as one whole in the disposition and actions of the head. He's talking about you and me. Like there's branches of a tree all connected together and we're going to come back to this tree image a bit later. Both guilt, now this is quite important, the final quotation, both guilt and also depravity of heart came upon Adam's posterity just as they came upon him. Just as the relationship between all the feelings and attitudes and desires and then actions came upon Adam, so also they came, come upon and came upon us as members of his, the tree of which Adam is the root. Let's at that point pause for a second and go to the next sheet. You'll turn over the, the sheet you've got in front of you. I want to invite you to look at the, um, the other landscape. I think it's got pictures on it. Gary will tell you that um, I'm unable to think without pictures. Um, I used to clutter his study with my little diagrams of this, that and the other. And here are some diagrams. Um, this sheds light, I think. Well, uh, no, maybe not sheds light, but, but at least raises some questions. And I chucked them out there because I, um, uh, Dr. McLenahan is here and he really knows something about Edwards and particularly Edwards' 
union with Christ, justification by faith. And what Edward says about Adam has implications for what we might think he might say about justification. It also has implications, which we'll look at first, for the debate between immediate and mediate imputation. Let me just explain those positions. The the distinction between mediate and immediate imputation is intended to distinguish two different ways in which we might think the sin of Adam is imputed to his posterity. The manner of the imputation, you might say. And I've tried to diagram them there. And these quotations from Murray summarise the views. Number one, on the left, mediate imputation. Quote, the imputation of the first sin follows hereditary corruption and is reckoned to be the effect that is, the effect of hereditary corruption. So in this little diagram, what you've got is Adam with his sin, and then an arrow, imputation to his posterity. But the imputation of Adam's first sin to Adam's offspring on the right is mediated, hence mediate, by the logically prior imputation of a corrupt nature. So is Adam's first sin imputed to his posterity? Yes, but via, mediated by, the imputation of a corrupt nature. that makes sense? Immediate imputation takes the opposite view. Quote, Adam's first sin precedes corruption in the order of nature and is reckoned to be the cause of corruption. So if you say um, to somebody who espouses immediate imputation, why have we got a corrupt nature? The answer is because we're counted as having committed Adam's first sin. If you ask somebody who takes the immediate imputation view, why are we counted as committing Adam's first sin? He will say, because... Adam's corrupt nature is counted to us. You see how the arrows work. Now, on balance, Murray prefers the doctrine of immediate imputation. And I think I'm right in saying this is broadly the view which is taken by most uh, reformed theologians. And the reason is quite intriguing because Murray points out that in Romans 5, what you've got is Adam's sin and then all die. You've got Adam's sin all condemned. You've got Adam's sin, all sinned. Romans 5 doesn't lend any support to the notion of something else getting in the way, another step on the path, the interposition of the mediation, of the uh, imputation of a corrupt nature. Moreover, second reason for favouring this view, the analogy with Christ works better, he says. It wouldn't be right to think that we're justified in Christ because of uh, righteous nature infused within us on account of which we're equipped to do good deeds. At least that's what I take Murray to be saying. And so Murray favours the doctrine of immediate imputation. But Jonathan Edwards has a third view and it arises from uh, the statement that concluded the uh, previous side, both guilt and also depravity of heart came upon Adam's posterity just as they came upon him. Let's look at the diagram. Uh, I've just changed the word slightly to evil disposition and external act because that reflects the vocabulary that Edward uses, but the, the meaning is the same as corrupt nature and Adam's first sin. Edward says the whole lot comes across as a package. And the logical relationship between the evil disposition and the external act is preserved in Adam's posterity. So some people have accused him of, of believing in the doctrine of immediate imputation. I don't think he does. In fact, he believes 
in the doctrine of immediate imputation because the, the sin of Adam imputed to us is consequent solely upon the divinely constituted union. But when it's imputed to us, its relationship to a corrupt nature and evil disposition is preserved. Open your eyes again. Okay, good. Make, make sense? And I've put some quotes on the right-hand side, uh, more to stimulate thought than anything else. I'm, I'm not going to read them uh, in much detail. Um, but you can see right at the bottom, the first depravity of heart and the imputation of that sin are both the consequences of that established union. So, immediate. But yet, in such order that the evil disposition is first and the charge of guilt consequent, as it was in the case of Adam himself. Now, where it gets really interesting is if you think, you now apply that analogy, that structure analogously to the doctrine of justification. Imagine Jonathan Edwards, if you will, at the Westminster Assembly, debating the doctrine of justification in Christ and saying things to the assembled divines that are analogous to what he says about the imputation of Adam's sin. For example, the righteousness of Christ is not ours merely because God imputes it to us. It is truly and properly ours. And on that ground, God imputes it to us. And it would be an interesting exercise, and this is where I just toss it out for Michael McLenahan to have a, have a back at us later in the Q&A, to go through Edwards's doctrine of original sin and work out, firstly, what would be implied by, for an analogous doctrine of justification, and secondly, to look at his stuff on justification and see what he actually says. And maybe we'll toss that back later. I should say I don't have a view on that. I'm just intrigued by the implications, and it's something I've not explored in detail and won't explore now. So, strengths of Edwards' position are many. Uh, on the second page of the first handout again, it upholds divine sovereignty, which is generally a good idea. Um, everything, you see, depends on the divine decree. His refusal to answer Taylor's objection points to the great strength. God just says so, and in the end, we kind of admire a, a theology and a doctrine of creation which says it, it all stems from the mind and the word of God. Second, it combines the strength of federalism and realism. Federalism, because everything rests on the divine decree. But realism, because there is a correspondence with the way things are. There's as much oneness between us and Adam as there could be between anything and anything else. Third, it upholds immediate imputation. There are some, as I've said, who think that Edwards denies that, but I don't think that's right, and Murray, once more, has a good discussion of that. Fourthly, it permits different kinds of created oneness in connection with different kinds of common properties. Fifthly, God could have one kind of oneness between Jesus and himself in connection with all sorts of common properties, like looking the same, and a different kind of oneness between him and us. And a different kind of oneness, this is for next year's conference, between Christ and a believer who subsequently falls away, on the one hand, and Christ and a believer who perseveres, on the other. Different kinds of oneness in connection with different kinds of faith and different states of heart and different other properties. Those are some of the strengths of Edwards' view. But it has some problems and the problems are quite serious. 
Edwards' doctrine of occasionalism denies secondary causation and in the process makes God responsible for sin. Let me explain how this works. Do you remember how occasionalism operates? Every moment of time as you look around you is a different universe from the next universe. God is con- um, Abraham is... Con- Abraham, God, try again. Jonathan Edwards is concerned to preserve the uniqueness of God's aseity. Only God can bring things about. Only, only God can be the cause of anything. Nothing else can cause its own existence which means that nothing else can cause anything at all. Occasionalism denies that there are within creation any secondary causes at all. Now that's the, that produces this problem because Reformed theology traditionally has relied on that to get God off the hook for sin. The way that it works is quite simple. You, um, you say that in a sinful action, the human will, which has genuine God-given secondary causative power, interposes itself, so to speak, between um, what God does and the sinful deed. So, I can't remember quite the terms that he used, but um, God upholds the substance of the act, the human agent is responsible for the morality of the act. Those are the kinds of distinctions which the Reformed would try to deploy. But the problem is, Edwards can't go there. Edwards can't appeal to anything else in creation to cause anything else at all. God is the only actor. God is the only agent. And therefore, if there's sin in the world, it's him what did it. God, therefore, is a sinner. And as you read Edwards, you read him on freedom of the will, you get to the end of it, and you're left with this nagging thought that this is the one thing he's not addressed. And it's also the same here. Now, in fairness, maybe he didn't live long enough. Maybe he was getting around to it. But as it spans occasionalism, it seems to me, undermines secondary causation and makes God responsible for sin. Second problem. Occasionalism implicitly undermines the doctrine of divine eternity. Divine eternity states simply that God is present to all creation at all moments of time. Uh, God has access to yesterday and a thousand years ago and indeed the moment of creation and now and a thousand years time. There's, no, there's nothing hidden from God in the world anywhere. He can get to it all. All those moments of time and places in history are accessible to him. But occasionalism denies this because all those moments in the past simply don't exist anymore. There's nothing for God to have access to. That creation has disappeared out of existence and the ones in the future don't exist yet. Not even God could have access to them. And the proof that they don't exist is that you're not there in them. If they existed, you'd be conscious of it. Because those universes are universes in which you and other moral agents are conscious. If you don't know about them, they're not there. Therefore, God can't be present to them. Thirdly, and Edwards could be forgiven for overlooking this, but I mentioned it just briefly. Um, it just so happens that um, uh, occasionalism is contradicted by the special theory of relativity, um, which was discovered a a few decades after Edwards um, by uh, Albert Einstein Um, broadly and let me just outline it Um, one of the implications of special relativity is that there's no absolute measure of time if you're travelling around in the universe you'll experience a set of events in the universe as simultaneous with you somebody else travelling around at a different velocity, different speed or different direction, will experience a different set of events as temporarily simultaneous. 
in technical terms, this is, means there is, uh, the view is called relativity of simultaneity. The stuff which you experience as simultaneous depends on uh, where you are and where you're going. And it has all sorts of really entertaining consequences. So, for example, let me give you one. If, if I'm, if, suppose there are some aliens on um, uh, a planet orbiting the nearest star. I'm not now saying that I think there are. You, you might think from some of the things I said that maybe I do hold such crazy ideas. But um, no, the, uh, imagine there are some aliens just taking off now. Now imagine that I start walking towards them and I look at them through a telescope. The properties of this universe in which we live are such that as I walk towards them, I would see them still packing their bags and getting ready to go. If I walked away and looked over my shoulder, they'd already have set off on their journey. Weird. Those are undeniably the properties of the universe in which we live. Similar effects have been measured experimentally with fast-flying airplanes and very accurate clocks. So Edwards's view doesn't describe the universe as it seems to exist. Therefore, it seems that what we need to do, if we want to rescue Edwards's theology, we need to provide an alternative ontology, an alternative view of the nature of things. And in the last, how long have I got, Gary? Five minutes? Five minutes. Let me have a go. Um, I should say, just before I do this, that um, this is an exercise in, I guess, what you might call philosophical theology. That is to say, this is not inferred directly from what the Bible says. This isn't good and necessary consequence stuff. This is rather like thinking, what could be the case? If you had a, a table with some objects on it and then a black cloth covering the table, you could say, on this table there might be a cup or it might be a jug, but it's not an elephant. Philosophical theology would say, it's maybe a jug, maybe a cup. It wouldn't try and infer that it necessarily must be. And I think... Uh, what I'm wanting to propose now is just one option and I'd be very happy to be contradicted by somebody who thought they had a better option but let me give this a go the universe is not three dimensional at all but four dimensional three spatial dimensions and one temporal dimension time this is fairly bog standard Newtonian physics and God sees the entire four-dimensional spatio-temporal universe as present to him. He's outside of time and space, so he can see it all. We are within time, and the way that we're constrained by time means we see one moment at a time. If you think of um, just two spatial dimensions, let's, let me try and conjure up for you a, a kind of 3D diagram here. So space and space, and then time travelling this way. We live in slices through this big thing but God sees the whole he sees the beginning from the end is that making sense? two nods, great, that's enough now, that means that not just the universe but everything in it is four dimensional too including man so what you have to imagine in this universe is humanity as a kind of tree Adam is the root and this is like Edwards' illustration. Adam is the root and came together with Eve and then branched into Cain and Abel and 
then branched more. And as humanity filled the earth and spread, these branches grew in number and shortened in length. And, um, and, and now what we've got, you, what we look around and we, we see a slice through this tree and we look at them. And they seem to us as individual little dots. Imagine doing that, chopping the top of a tree and then just mapping where the... Um, where the branches were, you'd see isolated things and you, you could kid yourself that they're isolated, but in fact they're connected through time. Humanity is an organic, connected whole and the universe that actually exists is like that, four-dimensional. Secondary causation is therefore permitted because God could give the capacity to branches of this tree to bump into each other, to affect each other in all sorts of ways. God is not necessarily responsible for sin. We could deploy all the same standard reformed responses to that accusation. But divine sovereignty is upheld because the whole thing exists only by the word of God. He sustains time and space in being. Divine eternity is upheld as well because we're saying God is outside of time, not constrained by it. We could have different kinds of identity, couldn't we? Because we could say that here's one tree man, humanity. Here's another tree over here. Um, pick another animal. Something in common. Skin. Similar properties. But it's distinct in other ways. And an elephant could be different from a cricket ball and from uh, the Amazon rainforest and from that chair and from Gary Williams. All these different kinds of oneness would be possible and therefore different kinds of properties would go with them. Now, think now of the doctrine of original sin. That means that we could be one with Adam in a very distinctive and significant way. It could also mean that we could be one with Christ in a distinctive and significant way, filled with the same spirit who indwells him. And it is just intriguing, isn't it, that Jesus uses this image of a tree. Romans 9 to 11... Um, John 15, and if you're at your branch on the vine, and um, Isaiah, the, the shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, and Jesus is the shoot, and we need to be grafted into him, and if you don't bear fruit, you'll be chopped off. I'm not now suggesting that Isaiah and John and Paul had in mind a four-dimensional universe, but this is the sort of thing that might incline you to think that this philosophical structure might be under the tablecloth. Kind of works. And all those forms of identity would go hand in hand with common properties. So God wouldn't decree any oneness within this created four-dimensional world that didn't go hand in hand with the way things are. But God's decree is the reason why things are one. If we then went back to Edwards' doctrine of original sin, I think we could rewrite it in those terms. This could effectively be an alternative power, ontological power supply for his theology. We don't need to go back and do that. You can see how that would work. I think it avoids the strengths, uh, avoids the weaknesses of his system. It doesn't compromise divine eternity. It's not contradicted by the special theory of relativity. It doesn't deny secondary causation. But it maintains the strengths. God is sovereign and so on. Uh, it could be wrong. And, as I said, I would be very happy to concede it is, but by the grace of God, it might be right. But that question probably best left for the discussion and for further reflection. Thank you. <laughs>